This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can follow Berkeley Talks wherever you listen to your podcasts. New episodes come out every other Friday. Also, we have another podcast, Berkeley Voices, that shares stories of people at UC Berkeley and the work that they do on and off campus. Jewish Art and Life, and it's my pleasure to welcome you this evening, as well as our distinguished guest, Uva Westfall. If you are a returning visitor, thank you for continuing to engage and connect with us. And if you're new, welcome. The museum's collections, exhibitions, and programs document and reflect global Jewish life. Before we get started, I'll just take you, uh, ask you to take a moment to silence any devices that you have with us and note the emergency exit at the back of the room. I also invite you to return another time to view our current exhibition, In Twilight, Ori Sherman's Creation, and to attend upcoming events. Ellie Sheva Baumgarten will be here at 5 p.m. on Tuesday next week to offer the Center for Jewish Studies Helen Diller Annual Lecture. You can find more information about all of our exhibitions and programs at magnus.berkeley.edu. This evening, we are proud to partner with the Center for Jewish Studies, Goethe Institute San Francisco, and the Consulate General of the Federal Republic of Germany, San Francisco, to present this program. Please join me in welcoming Deputy Consul General Elena Sims. Ladies and gentlemen, dear Hannah, John, Noemi, and Uwe, welcome everybody. Please let me start with some thank yous. A heartfelt thank you to the Magnus Collection and to the Center for Jewish Studies of the University of Berkeley for partnering with us once more. This is already our second event together after we successfully hosted the Shared History Traveling Exhibit last September. And for sure, this won't be our last event. And to the Goethe Institute for partnering with us and introducing Uwe Westphal to us, and of course to Uwe for being here with us tonight and shedding light on a part of Jewish life that otherwise would be relatively little known about. Today's lecture will touch on the rise and destruction of the Jewish fashion industry in Berlin. I don't know uh, how many of you had the opportunity to visit Berlin yet, but for those of you who had the opportunity, you might know that the closest metro station to the foreign office is the Hausfugteiplatz. And it is right there at the Hausfugteiplatz where once the heart of the city's fashion industry was located. So every uh, morning on my way to work, when I leave the station, the first thing I see are little placards that have been placed on the steps leading up to the Hausfugteiplatz. And these placards are part of a memorial by Rainer Gers. The placards are engraved with the names of Jewish fashion companies that once were located at the Hausfugteiplatz and whose businesses were destroyed by the Nazis. And some of the placards are empty. They serve as placeholders 
for the many companies who could not be named there. There were more than 2,700 companies, mostly under Jewish ownership. And for me, it was always especially the absence of the names that symbolized a void, a loss of something that had been irrevocably destroyed. So the pogroms of November in 1938 set an end to the thriving Jewish fashion industry. And these effects are still felt today, as there are no major big fashion entrepreneurs in Berlin. And um, so today we have the opportunity to learn more about the history and the fate of the Jewish fashion industry. And just as important, today we also have the opportunity to look back and learn from the past so we can prevent history from repeating itself. So let us all take the empty names on the placards on the steps of the Hausvogteiplatz as a stark reminder that we can't bring back what has been destroyed. We can't bring back the many lives who were brutally ended by the Nazi regime. But there is something that we can do. We can make a promise that we will honor their legacy and remain vigilant whenever we encounter anti-Semitism right in its beginnings. In this context, education and remembrance work are of fundamental importance. It is important to keep connecting to the past in our present life, and based on this, to shape the future, a future in which we recognize a human being in every human being, and encounter each other from person to person. Today, once again, we are living in a time of profound change. And in such times, the danger is always particularly great that those who react to the difficulties with supposedly simple answers will gain popularity. So simple answers that uh, too often go hand in hand with the brutalization of language on the streets as well as on the internet. This is the beginning that we have to counter decisively. And that's why I'm really extremely grateful <clears throat> that we together with the Magnus and Goethe and the Center for Jewish Studies of the University of Berkeley are able to welcome Mr. Uwe Westphal here tonight to educate us about the history of the Jewish fashion industry and the lessons that can be taken from it. <clears throat> so thank you so much. I wish us all a very insightful lecture and discussion. And now, um, without further ado, I'd like to hand it over to Noemi Jangiu, the director of the Goethe Institute in San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, Elena, and thank you, Hannah, for your uh, really important and touching remarks. I just want to give you a brief story of um, how we got to be here tonight. Um, the first time I heard about Uwe Westphal was about one or two years ago at a dinner party. I was approached by two wonderful and wise women at, uh, with the, by the name of Gunda Trepp and Barbara Osher. And they were telling me, have you read this book? It is brilliant. It is, you have to look into it. It might be something for the Goethe Institute. Please do. 
And so I did. And Fashion Metropolis Berlin was absorbing me and it was frankly an eye-opener to the many untold stories and experiences of creativity, of immense loss and suffering, but also survival within the Jewish fashion industry in Germany. My deep gratitude goes out to Gunda and Barbro for making me aware of this important work and for making this night possible. Without them, we wouldn't be here. And also, this, uh, by the way, is how we as Goethe Institute try to work. We, we try to be in continuous conversation with all of you, and we try to understand the questions you have, the feedback you might have, um, the thoughts and ideas you might have. So please keep reaching out to us. Please tell us. I already had a few um, really nice conversations tonight. And tell us what is moving you and um, what you would like to hear from us. Um, we do have Berlin and Beyond, a film festival coming up end of March that might be of interest to you. And we do have German courses, both um, online and offline. So please reach out to us, and we love to be in this kind of dialogue with you. I want to extend my heartfelt thank you to the magnificent team of the Magnus Collection and also of the German Consulate. All the people involved, uh, Laura, Etta, Jennifer, Gabi, Elena, Bettina, it was wonderful working on this with you together and coming up with this event tonight. I want to thank uh, Bettina also, our program curator at the Goethe Institute, for being a magnificent curator, also an amazing host. I don't see you right now, but I know you took good care of our guest, Uwe Westphal. Thank you so much, Uwe and your wonderful wife, Mechthild, for accepting our invite and coming to the Bay Area and sharing your important work with us tonight. So also, without further ado, let me introduce the moderator and host of tonight's event. Professor John Efron, Corrid Professor of Jewish History and Faculty Director of the UC Berkeley Center for Jewish Studies. He specializes in the cultural and social history of German Jewry and writes on German Jewish engagement with medicine, anthropology, and antisemitism. He's also elected fellow of the American Academy of Jewish Research. Welcome. Welcome, John Efron. Uh, good evening, everybody. Lovely to see so many of you here. Um, I also want to sincerely thank our uh, co-organizers and sponsors, and they are the UC Berkeley Center for Jewish Studies, the Magnus Collection of Jewish Art and Life, the Goethe Institute of San Francisco, and the Consulate General of the Federal Republic of Germany in San Francisco. And we are really grateful to be able to continue our collaboration together. Uh, if we were to play a word association game and you sort of ask, you just say to someone, German, German Jewry between 1871 and 1933. I'm a historian. There has to be dates. So, okay. <laughs> so that's the date from when the Jews were emancipated in Germany in 1871 to the end, 1933. Uh, now, even though it was, that's a very, very brief period, 60 years, only 60 years, and that was a period of glittering genius. So it's quite likely that... Uh, our participant in this, in this word association game will rattle off a list of gifted individuals, some forgotten today, but many of them still household names. 
They were people who, in many cases, changed Western culture in its many forms. Gustav Mahler, Arnold Schoenberg, Otto Klemperer, Max Reinhardt, Sigmund Freud, Alfred Adler, Albert Einstein, Theodor Herzl, Franz Kafka, Schnitzler, Josef Roth, Stefan Zweig, Walter Benjamin, Gershom Scholem, Hannah Arendt, Elske Laske-Schüler, Paul Ehrlich, and Arthur Eichengrün, who you may not know, but he invented aspirin. In every area of cultural, intellectual, and scientific endeavor, German-speaking Jewry were representatives of modernism and or the avant-garde. The 600,000 Jews in Germany at this time represented less than 1% of the total population. But they made up 50% of the doctors in Berlin, 60% of the doctors in Vienna, 40% of the lawyers of Berlin when Hitler came to power. But the total percentage of Jews in the free professions, and the free professions are sort of law, medicine, journalism, was only about 8%. By contrast, over 60% of German Jews were involved in commerce or trade. Today, unlike the galaxy of stars that I just named, we'd be hard-pressed to name any of these people. And that's a shame, because by including them, we get a far better sense of German Jewry's contribution to the modernization of society. And what we will see is that in the realm of business, the practices of Jewish businessmen stood apart in important ways from the practices of German business people. With centuries of all but enforced commercial practice, Jews were well equipped to meet the demands of modern commerce and immediately sense what was required at the start of the consumer revolution. The hallmarks of Jewish business, business were risk-taking and innovation. Jews in Germany were the first to use advertising, start mail-order businesses, install telephones in workplaces, introduced the department store, and made it their business to travel to international trade fairs and world exhibitions in search of products and opportunities, new products and opportunities. They also opened discount stores for the poorer working classes, as well as luxury stores aimed to serve Germany's rising and wealthy middle classes. Jews also tended to be more mobile, willing to move to, to wherever there was opportunity. Familial and friendship networks, both in and outside of Germany, made the import and export business very attractive to Jews, especially in the fields of clothing, textiles, and furs. The owners of these businesses brought a fearless modernist sensibility and practice to business in general, and the business most of them had something to do with was the garment industry, clothing industry. And here, German Jewry was not alone. In the 19th and 20th centuries, Wherever there were large Jewish communities, Jews were in the Schmutter business. The east end of London, the lower east side of Manhattan, and then 7th Avenue, the south ward of Toronto, the Pletzel in Paris, and Flinders Lane in Melbourne, where I spent a lot of time when I was a child, in factories, making ladies wear. uncles and cousins and the whole thing. But all of this was preceded by what happened in Berlin, where at least since the 1830s, figures that I will leave to Uwe to tell us about, but major figures were among the pioneers of a new production model called the Berliner Konfektion, Berlin style, inspired by Parisian haute couture, uh, and they also offered the uh, public off-the-rack clothing using standardized, measure, standardized measures and prices. 
All of those businesses and the fashion labels now known to us really were household names, easily as famous as Freud and Einstein, perhaps even more so for most people. Something to think about. They were largely forgotten until the early 2000s when some historians began looking at the clothing industry in the Third Reich. As good as this work was, most of them looked at it from the perspective of the perpetrators. The story, however, changed with the work of tonight's speaker, Uwe Westphal. For Uwe took seriously the need to stress the Jewish component of the, of the German and especially the Berlin fashion industry. He has rescued all of those names from oblivion and has, in great and very readable detail, made us aware of all the hard, innovative, commercially and fashionably modernist contributions of those Jews who did so much to clothe so many in affordable, fashionable attire. Wolver Westphal is an internationally renowned author and journalist. He resides in both Berlin and London. He's a foreign, political foreign correspondent for German public broadcasting in the UK and the US. He has worked for the International Pen Association of Writers and as a journalist and producer for PBS and CBS in New York. He is the author of four works on the history of the Third Reich and numerous essays for the Leo Beck Institute. Uwe's work has, Uwe's work has appeared on Radio 4 and the BBC and in the New York Times. And most recently he has lectured at Yad Vashem and the US Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington and at FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. His wonderful book, Fashion Metropolis, Berlin, 1836 to 1939, the story of the rise and destruction of the Jewish fashion industry, is also the title and subject of tonight's talk. Please join me finally in welcoming Uwe Westphal. Well, first thing, I need a zip of water. Thank you very much to all of you. Thank you very much to all the speakers and uh, the wonderful things I've just heard about myself, about the book. The book is important, it's not me. And uh, I also want to say uh, thank you very much because it's such a long way back that uh, my name actually was uh, put forward to the Goethe Institute by Gunda. Gunda, I can't see you, where are you? All right, hi, thank you very much again. <clears throat> okay, before I start my talk about the history of Jewish fashion firms in Berlin, I would like to tell you a little bit more about myself. When I began my writing career, I dreamt of being a foreign correspondent. Ultimately, later, I actually achieved that. But I wanted to be in a major newspaper early days in my career. Needless to say, no editor actually was going to hire me. A complete novice to such a prestigious position. But, as luck would have it, a Berlin paper offered me a freelance job as a fashion reporter. Well, the problem was I had absolutely no clue about fashion. But the editor said I would soon pick it up and I accepted the challenge. 
It was a very steep learning curve, I can tell you that. And one of the joys of the job, I traveled to all the major fashion shows in Paris, London, Milan, New York, and uh, I loved it. I loved it. But I had to write about it. That's a different story. <laughs> so, however, I somehow managed. But what was actually very interesting was that uh, at the end of the 1980s, I met Jewish fashion designers who had once lived and worked in Berlin, and they came from London or from New York, and they'd flown into uh, Paris to see the uh, haute couture fashion shows. They were happy to tell me their stories about life in the 1920s Berlin, and gave me a vivid description of the new innovative designs and the incredible glamour of the uh, Berlin fashion scene during the Weimar years. But they also told me about how they were forced to flee Germany when the Nazis came into power. And so I thought this is something nobody has ever heard about it before, maybe in little stories, but the actual story hasn't been written about Jewish fashion in Berlin. And so I put adverts into various Jewish magazines, the AJR, Association of Jewish Refugees, in London, in New York, and uh, a few weeks later I received boxes of documents and photographs in the mail, something that was still existing in that time strange. <laughs> so literally, really, from all over the world, until Argentina, Argentina uh, from France, from England, quite a few. And so I'm really grateful to all of these people who so willingly shared their personal stories with me. Without their help, I would never have been able to write my books and about the lost history of Jewish fashion companies, which once flourished in Berlin. And thanks to those documents and interviews with Holocaust survivors, I was able to help some claimants negotiate restitution cases in Germany. Altogether, nearly 70 cases. You will be as shocked as I was as when, when, when I learned about how German fashion designers and manufacturers and companies have never, ever talked about what happened between 33 and 45, 1933 to 45. But why was there such a deafening silence? And that is something that found, I found personally very interesting when I was a young journalist, and I still do actually find it interesting. Why was that? And my answer is because the German fashion industry profited from the wholesale Nazi confiscations of the once Jewish-owned companies. And as beneficiaries of anti-Semitism, the last thing anyone wanted to do was to own up to their own participation. The destruction of the entire fashion industry meant forced labor, government-organized theft, and the murder and the deportation of Jews. Today, 78 years after the end of World War II, Unlike most other industries in Germany, fashion producers, small and large, have not yet taken on responsibility for what happened. 
These days, a few days after the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, the German fashion industry kept their silence on what actually happened. Hiding behind a smokescreen of glamour and new ideas of sustainable fashion is, in my opinion, not an option. As important as innovative forces of the, in the 21st century fashion industry is really looking for, they will not work out if the historical connection between fashion and the Holocaust remains hidden. I agree with Jennifer Fisher, a U.S. fashion accessory designer, who said, the fashion industry has an ethical and social responsibility to show the world how fashion can be a powerful tool in combating anti-Semitism. As a brand whose product does not discriminate, we champion diversity, inclusion, and equality. We believe that fashion can be an agent in a positive change in this world. I didn't have anything to add to that because it was just right. Now, let's go back in history and let's talk about how it all began. First of all, I would like to show you a short video about the actual place where Jewish fashion, and it has been mentioned by John as well, um, where actually fashion has been created. The Hausfolk Teilplatz, that's quite a mouthful, but you will get used to it because it was a place just right in the center, a very old traditional name, but it was uh, a very interesting place. So can I please see the video? So we are here at uh, Berlin Hausvogteiplatz, which was once the old Berlin fashion center. All the shops and firms counted in 1932 were mostly Jewish firms. And this is actually the center of the Hausvogteiplatz, the old fashion center of Berlin. This memorial you can see here was set up by my publisher, by the Jewish community in Berlin in 1992. Don't forget, in 1938, all of these buildings have been raided by Nazi hooligans. They have thrown out index cards, fabrics. They actually forced them to give up their business. So 2,700 companies were in this immediate neighborhood. Nearly all of them were Jewish. And with the Kristallnacht, that was the end of the Jewish Berlin fashion industry. Not a lot of the old buildings are still there, but some. After the 1820s, Jews were officially allowed to produce new garments. They invented efficient sizing systems, and so began Berlin's fashion industry. This building is actually the Valentin Mannheimer business office and they even need fashion shows in here. The Valentin Mannheimer coat factory was world famous, the king of coats. He was huge, he had nearly 8,000 employees. The old original gate is still here. You can see the V and the M, Valentin Mannheimer. He exported globally. 
The astonishing boom in the Berlin fashion trade and its emergence as a new dynamic fashion capital drew top fashion designers from Paris. As women became increasingly emancipated, hundreds of fashion magazines stimulated customers to shop at grand new department stores like Nathan Israel, Hermann Gerson and Valentine Mannheimer. Soon Berlin had around 2,700 fashion retailers and workshops. Well, it stopped a bit uh, quick, but uh, the, the, the actual message was and you got that, that the Hausfurt Teilplatz was the center, and it had actually spread out from there in all the various parts of the Berlin art and into intellectual life. And that was the important part, what the fashion industry during the time in the 1920s is actually very different from that what we have today. But I come to that later. Berlin's fashion industry boomed. The city became a hub for talent and design. Young Jewish fashion designers opened up new firms and shops. Berlin's growing film industry and the new movie stars like Marlene Dietrich, Josephine Baker, musicians, theaters, popular Broadway shows, writers and composers, gay and lesbian bars and clubs, architecture and, of course, the Bauhaus. All of this merged into a new style in fashion. The fashion designers were part of this. They created what was later called the golden 1920s or Berlin chic. Let's have a look how life actually was when Marlene Dietrich was still around and how fashion metropolis actually worked in the entertainment industry. What was the actual secret to there being so many Jewish fashion producers and designers in Berlin with such an incredible success? That was one of my major points in my research. I did over probably about six, seven years, and that continued over the last years. The answer is actually very easy. There was no secret. Jews made use of their know-how of making clothes with the right fabrics. They had a feeling for what people liked and they had, an international, they had many international connections to textile producers. They knew 
what a good fabric is and what a kind of good fabric is and what a really bad fabric is. And they had a full understanding of what kind of fabric and additional stuff you need to produce a coat and what price range that can be sold afterwards to the uh, big superstores in Berlin. Fashion styles that spread across Europe were adopted in Berlin by those who could actually afford buying fancy dresses. To all others, including the thousands of female office workers, of which you had actually quite a few in Berlin, Berlin fashion offered cheap, stylish and high-quality day-to-day clothing. The liberal political climate of the young Weimar democracy enabled new creative fashion trends. Jewish tailors, designers and businesses were masters of their craft and know-how, and they welcomed the inspiration by new art movements like the Bauhaus. Fashion in the 1920s stood also for a democratic fashion style. That is actually an expression that has been used in the 1920s, not only by intellectuals, that was also written by Gerson in the shop window. They really, really had a full understanding of how to express themselves in a new time period. Don't forget, the years before, back to the emperor, that was a tough time for women to wear clothes, fashionable clothes. So... It's, it, it, it really was a moment where, where Berlin woke up and had a completely different idea about what fashion is. So Bauhaus was, as I said before, a very clear influence. Wertheim, the uh, big uh, superstore, the main department stores in Berlin were actually run by Jewish families because they knew how to do this. Wertheim, Karstadt, Tietz, Nathan Israel, to just name a few. Department stores were first established in the U.S. To the Berlin fashion producers, they offered a unique opportunity to sell fast and to showcase their pieces with in elaborately, almost theatrically decorated settings, admired by potential customers catching the glimpse of the glamour through the windows all along Friedrichstraße and Kurfürstendamm as well, or at seasonal fashion shows. That was something completely new. In the stores, people loved fashion, and they were actually happy to pay also quite a bit of money for that. But not all of them liked fashion. At the end of the 19th century, already anti-Semitic political organizations and newspapers stigmatized Jewish fashion firms and designers as decadent or a danger to German economic decency. For the first time since right-wing nationalist movement focused on Jewish fashion producers and their shops, that was actually something that wasn't heard before, although it was known, but it wasn't heard in the political circles. In 1899, the Association of Aryan Businesses called for a boycott of non-Aryan clothing. Anti-Semitic political parties became part of the parliament. Prejudice and irrational hatred against Jews broke fresh ground at this time. Innocent German citizens 
wrote the magazine Antisemitic Correspondence, do not even have far the influence of the Israeli alliance and the resulting Jewification of Germany understood. It is a real danger. Fashion is dictated, that is a quote from the magazine, fashion is dictated, is dictated to us by Jews. That was, by the way, something that Adolf Hitler actually used again later on. Still, more and more young fashion designers became popular in Berlin, and the majority of customers did not care who made their clothes. The new generation of successful Jewish fashion designers created a truly international style. It was called the new objectivity, or neue Sachlichkeit in German. Norbert Yuchenka was one of the rising stars of the Berlin fashion world, and you will hear about him a little bit later. In the mid-1920s, Berlin fashion became a strong competitor of the Paris couture. Berlin fashion designers traveled pretty frequently, actually every three months, from Berlin in a special train to the old couture shows in Paris. They went to the couture shows, and they took the ideas they were actually produced in Paris for a lot of money back with them to Berlin, but produced the clothing in Berlin and turned them into day-to-day clothing, so something that everybody could buy and wear. That was actually quite a, a clever concept. It's actually heute, it is actually today, it's, it's, it's the same kind of thing all over the world. It's just um, nicking and stealing the ideas from uh, great fashion designers. Women's liberation and the democratic idea of fashion. Paris couture was innovative, but expensive. On the other hand, Berlin confection, or ready-to-wear, served the mass market and the demand for a day-to-day clothing. Berlin chic was a branding that helped selling modern and stylish garments outside Germany. New customers were found in the United States, Netherlands, England, Scandinavia, Argentina. 78% of the exporting Berlin fashion firms were Jewish. They knew how to handle large exports because they had qualified staff and thousands of seamstresses working in small workshops in the suburbs and from home. The Hermann Gerson was one of the major, the, 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 actually the major company, fashion company in Berlin. He delivered high-class fashion to the royal families in Greece and in England. Gerson became what was known today as the Harrods in London, but a new generation of businesses and fashion designers was already waiting and waiting for their chance. Like in Paris, Berlin fashion makers closely collaborated with artists and intellectuals. This was also the case for the fashion enthusiastic painter Ernst Ludwig Kirchner. Fashion design and color stimulated the artist and the clothing manufacturers alike. Fashion became an integrated part of the Berlin's intellectual and cultural life. 
The painting by Kirchner, you can see here, is actually the best example for that. After 1918, the share of Jewish fashion manufacturers fell from a total of 85% to 60%. But still, Jewish firms dominated the worldwide exports of women's fashionable clothing from Berlin in 1927. Like many others, the company Loeb and Levy was in the area of the Hasurtaiplatz. Now, Berlin's Jewish fashion companies employed 90,000 tailors and an unknown number of seamstresses around the city. Fashion, as well as accessory companies, became the second largest industry in Berlin. The first largest was Siemens, with about 120,000 employees. In the fashion companies, 90,000, plus an unknown number of seamstresses. So I assume that actually the fashion industry was the largest industry in Berlin. But I can't prove it because it was an unknown number. All these seamstresses, they worked uh, very hard for just a bit of money, uh, but the number is not really clear. So with 90,000 tailors and an unknown number of seamstresses in around the city, as well as accessory companies, was an economical factor in the city. But the global economic crisis in 28-29 led to mass insolvencies and business closures. However, the export market picked up soon afterwards. Anti-Semitic right-wing parties continued campaigning against the participation of Jews in the fashion industry. However, large Jewish fashion companies with high export numbers were still working and generating profit in 1936, so the year of the Olympic Games. Like Leopold Seligman, just around the corner of the old fashion center in Berlin. The photographs you are going to see now are actually the only photographs of an operating top Jewish fashion company in 1932. It's a series of photographs, of five or six photographs. Can we see them, please? No, that's uh, unfortunately not the one. Can we go back to slide uh, 21, please? And continue. Yeah. So that is the firm Leopold Seligman in 1932. And continue. This is the, uh, what they called the expedition. That's where they actually, uh, the made clothes were actually wrapped up in boxes and they were sent by mail. And continue. That's the uh, storage place for all the uh, fabrics. Before the uh, models actually went on the catwalk, they had to get the uh, approval from the uh, big boss, from Mr. Seligman, who is on the uh, right-hand side on chair. And these were the uh, ready-made models. And so they went also with these kind of uh, clothing uh, onto the catwalk, and uh, the customers were actually waiting for that. Okay. And that's uh, also an unusual photograph. Um, 
By the way, maybe you might be interested how I found these photographs. It was on the flea market. On the flea market, London Camden flea market. I went there and I saw, you know, as it is, you know, you see a, a book with uh, photographs and you open it and you think, this is unbelievable, you know, I'm writing about this. This is the subject I, I have in my everyday work. And uh, so I bought this uh, box of, uh, this album of uh, altogether about 18 photographs. And these are the only ones. I have checked it with the Berlin Jewish Museum. Nobody has got these photographs. So it's fantastic. And you can see the people. Most of the people, I assume, I couldn't research all of them, actually ultimately went to London uh, to get out of Berlin. So, okay. Right. I'll come back to these gentlemen behind me. So why did the Nazis actually focus on the uh, Jewish fashion companies in Berlin? I have found three major reasons. Number one is nearly 3,000 Jewish fashion companies represented capital and real estate in the center of Berlin, close to the headquarters of Hitler's government's departments. In 1940, just eight of these companies were left. None Jewish fashion designers took over, now without the competition from Jewish firms. It was the first time since 1836 that, this, that fashion in Berlin was made without Jews. My point number two I found for the reasons why the Nazis were so hard on confiscating uh, Jewish property. The objective of the Nazis was to confis confiscate Jewish property and turn Hausfolk Timeplatz building into NS party offices. And the final reason, number three, the final motivation for confiscating Jewish fashion companies was simply greed and ultimately getting Berlin's fashion firms ready for the war by producing uniforms like the company of the NSDAP member, Hugo Boss. Demonstratively, Dr. Schacht, Hitler's state bank president, gave a speech on the subject at Hausfug Teilplatz. By this time, in March 1936, all Jewish firms had been cut off from bank loans supplies, insurances, and bank accounts. All of those are essential to produce fashion. You don't need only good ideas. You need the financial basis. You need insurances to show what you actually made. Forced liquidations of Jewish fashion firms allowed NSDAP members and Nazi loyal designers were promoted by the government. Fashion shows had to be approved by the NSDAP, the Nazi party. In November, or the November pogroms during the so-called Kusselnacht were just a culmination of the systematic persecution and government-run theft of Jewish capital in Berlin. Can we see the uh, writing again? Yes, that's, thank you. This is what an eyewitness actually reported to me. And that eyewitness was Ruth Phillips, whom I met because I put an advert 
into the Association of Jewish Refugees in London, and she wrote to me and sent me her stuff. And it, of course, makes me very happy to say that we have the grandchild of Ruth Phillips in here. It's Ben Wood. Ben, where are you? Hi. <laughs> and she was absolutely right with her assessment of what actually happened. It was actually not from the 9th to the 10th, it was from the 10th to the 11th of November that all this happened at Hausburg Teilplatz. So the place was littered with office index cards and clothing. Some of them were burned, the patterns were still thrown out of the windows. It was the end of the Jewish fashion industry altogether. A few months later, in 1939, nearly 90%, 98% of all Berlin fashion firms were confiscated, insolvent or expropriated. Some of the former companies' owners emigrated or were imprisoned, later sent to concentration camp and forced labor camps. Here's a minute of rare silent film footage of the Betzin slave labor camp. Betzin was a small town in the immediate neighborhood of Auschwitz. This film was made by a Nazi propaganda unit. As I said, it was a propaganda film. Uh, the realistic uh, assessment of that, what happened in these forced labor camps, um, has been, you know written down by people that actually have been there. Uh, some also say those of those people that actually had to work there and forced into these uh, textile workshops, um, they survived because of that. So they didn't have much rougher and harder work and labor conditions. So some actually survived, and, uh, but they knew pretty well what they have been through. Now, German governments and uniforms were produced in roughly 18 slave labor camps close to the concentration camps. Did the German public know about this? They did know who produced their clothes, and they were wearing, and they bought them. Sure. Everybody knew this, because advertising in all the papers, in all the Nazi papers, was actually advertising clothing from forced labor camps. It was no secret. Berlin fashion companies now, without Jews, ordered directly from ghetto slave labor camps what they wanted. And there is actually an order form. Can we see this letter here? So... The, the unbelievable fact behind this letter is that the person who called this company Charlotte Röhl was former Leopold Lindemann. Leopold Lindemann had to sell his company. It was exactly on Hausburg Teilplatz 11A. Now, the person who actually have that, had that company, he actually produced at the ghetto in Litzmannstadt. So it became common sense for 
the German public and for the German fashion companies to order clothes in forced labor camps. The bitter irony is that Leopold Linnemann actually had this company for over 10 years. All his interior was confiscated, including all the sewing machines. It was actually brought to lodge in the forced labor camp. And here, the Jewish employees of the former Leopold Lindemann Company in Berlin, they have been arrested as well, and they brought them again to the forced labor camp. So the entire setup of this company, uh, Charlotte Röhl, was actually uh, delegated to a forced labor camp. And this is, of course, something where I always had difficulties to understand what is actually happening here and what is going on during these Nazi years. However, in the meantime, and in, as of 1941, German fashion designers happily ordered fashionable goods from forced labor camps. Public displays and forced labor productivity in 1943. Now, i give you some numbers, not too many. Lodge Ghetto had between 41 and 44 about 13 to 14,000 women and men working there. Productivity increased by 1,000% during that time. In 1942, alone 3.9 million pieces of female clothing were made in these camps. Those who could not keep up the pace, weakened by illness, were immediately deported to the death camps. One company among many others, was Hugo Boss, the Führer's tailor. Boss deported seamstresses from Betzin to their forced labor camp at Hugo Boss headquarters in Metzingen in Bavaria. So he decided, I just turn it around. I'm not recruiting forced labor camps in the camps or close by the camps. I deport the forced laborers to my company, to my factories in Bavaria. Relatives of Holocaust survivors are still trying to get at least a pension from Hugo Boss until this very day without success. At the end of the war, there was the most visible end of the war when you went to Haushochteiplatz. That's what basically was left there. Time to ask what actually happened to those designers who emigrated, and that's why I'm coming to my final section of this uh, presentation. The old fashion center was destroyed by Allied bombing raids. Only a few Jewish designers were able to build new careers after fleeing Berlin. Among them was Leopold Seligman, who saw, you heard about him earlier, he fled Berlin with his family in 1937, first to London, then to New Mexico, to Albuquerque. And he was the only German-Jewish immigrant refugee that actually went to Albuquerque. <laughs> but why did he do that? Well, he had a reason. Here, Seligman built a new company called Pioneerware. Seligman was actually pretty good in doing this kind of more traditional stuff with a Spanish influence and uh, he knew that there is a market. Over the next 
15 years, the company became the second largest closing company in the United States, probably due to the invention of the popular Marlboro Western style. <laughs> Seligman's restitution case, however, was rejected by Berlin court in the 1950s. My example number two is Norbert Yuchenka. I mentioned his name before. Another leading, cutting-edge fashion firm in Berlin was Norbert Yuchenka's. Originally from Krakow, he was recognized for his modern and uncompromised couture style. Here, Norbert Yuchenka is, uh, was his wife, Lisa Lotte, in front of a plane of 1937. Shortly after that, he actually left Berlin. Norbert Yuchenka was put under Nazi pressure to sell his company with 120 staff members. He knew that he had no chance to save his business. In 1938, he agreed a forced sale, 86% below the estimated value he had to sell his company. He emigrated with his wife to New York City. Yuchenka changed his name to J, J-A-Y, and rekindled his success on 49872 in Manhattan. The media praised his designs as the renaissance of fashion. Nova J was compared for his stylish dresses in New York with the top elite fashion couture. Yuchenka's businesses, assets, remaining bank accounts in Berlin were confiscated by a fraudulent successor of Norbert Yuchenka in 1941. He never received restitution and he died in 1954. His daughter Gloria lives in New York and his uh, grandchild as well, Jennifer, and I'm very grateful they gave me all the information that I could actually revive the credibility and the fantastic talent of Norbert Yuchenka. So, Go from here to post-war Berlin. 45 was not the end of the story, as you can imagine. In 1956, this picture actually shows what and how West Berlin was actually run by a new elite of fashion designers. But all of these gentlemen on this photograph from 1959, they were all members of the Nazi party. And they were all part of the confiscation of Jewish property in the fashion industry the years before, or some actually had an apprenticeship in these Jewish companies. When I got into the subject in the 1980s and I confronted some of these gentlemen, they were then rather old, and I said to them, so why uh, did you say anything about it? Because they needed actually your... Um, Words, because they were actually looking for documents that these, these companies were actually owned by Jews. They had actually, these guys have confiscated. They had the documents, but they didn't give them to those they were looking for restitution. So at the end, 1989, the wall came down. GDR closing before these years wasn't actually worth talking about but it was still big business, you know, West Germany bought closing in East Germany. Um, somehow, a late US allied commander of Berlin, 
He was just puzzled and he said, it is incredible how quickly Berlin fashion recovered from the war. Well, I wasn't too surprised because they used all the money from the confiscated companies and the properties to uh, run their own business without Jews. In 1992, I took the initiative with my publisher in the Jewish community. You have heard about this already, to establish a memorial for Jewish fashion designers at the Hausvogteiplatz. And that is the memorial. You have seen it in the video as well. Some last thoughts about all of this, what I was talking about today, and uh, what's maybe interesting for the future. In 2023, Berlin Fashion Companies, the Berlin Fashion Week, and the Fashion Council Germany refused to remember how Jewish fashion was stolen and destroyed by the Nazis and how they actually have profited from a Jew-free fashion scene in Berlin. There is no fashion designer award in the name of the Jewish founders of fashion in Berlin. In fact, most young Berlin fashion designers today have no idea about the Jewish roots and tradition of the glamorous times of fashion in the city Higher education design departments at universities are still reluctant to teach their students what actually happened in the past. More recently, startups for fashionable and sustainable fashion and young Israeli fashion designers flock to Berlin with new ideas. And that's a positive sign. But Berlin's fashion scene has never recovered its glory and fame and is now internationally not exactly a high flyer. London, New York City, Milan, Paris is still very much on the agenda, and certainly Asian producers as well. Nor has the Berlin fashion scene fully admitted its role in destroying the once famous and creative fashion industry and the, and the Jews who built this scenery uh, for over 100 years, and led the fashion scenery to a success. Campaigns like this one by the Council of Fashion Designers of America is unfortunately not running in Berlin. I don't know why that is, but I have got some ideas. For many years, I have tried to tell a forgotten story that's why I wrote my recently published book. The younger generation needs to understand the connection between the Holocaust and the destruction of the Berlin fashion industry. The link is obvious, and everybody who wants to know can find out about it. Sustainable fashion, the use of environment, conscious materials for fashion, the fight against slave labor conditions in Asia and Europe, all of this is an important step in the right direction. We should not forget 75% of today's slave labor in fashion products where victims are girls and women, women of color from Af Africa and South Asia. And we will not forget the crimes 
against Jewish fashion firms and people in Germany between 1933 and 45. And this is where the past and the present is actually linking up. Preserving our heritage is preserving our memory. We cannot build a sustainable future of fashion without remembering what happened in the past in Germany. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much, Uwe. An incredible talk. Um, maddening talk, but an incredible yeah. talk. Um, I'm Duncan McRae. I'm one of the faculty members here at the UC Berkeley Center for Jewish Studies, and I'm just going to help out with moderating uh, the questions. <clears throat> and we have about 15 minutes for questions, so we have plenty of time. Um, so if you just please put up your hand and wait for a moment, a microphone will come to you. So I think the first one, yes, in the white. Thank you. Um, how, what percentage of the workers uh, were Jewish in uh, the factories? Can you repeat that, what please? What percentage of the workers, the seamstresses, the tailors, were Jewish in, in this industry? Uh, before they started forced labor, that's what you mean, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Um, I just know that the number of Orthodox Jewish tailors in Berlin was absolutely vast after 1910 and shortly after the First World War. So the number and the influx of Orthodox Jews into Berlin, and that was also significantly at the Jewish quarter in Berlin, which was basically very close to the Hausburg Teilplatz, and there were sewing machines all over the place. But you are asking me for numbers. I can't give you the numbers because nobody actually uh, made the effort during that time, uh, not as far as I know, uh, to uh, count uh, the relationship between Jews and non-Jews, Jews in the fashion industry. Um, yes, further <clears throat> forward here, the gray. Just a moment. Yeah. Thank you. You mentioned that Jews had a feeling for fabrics. Uh, can you expand how they got that feeling? I wish I would. If I would, then I wouldn't be here. I would probably sell my capacity somewhere else. <laughs> I think, uh, looking back into the development of the Jewish fashion industry only in Berlin. Um, there was a huge influx from Galicia uh, of tailors and textile importers because of the pogroms in these regions in Eastern Europe. And they actually came to Berlin. Berlin became a point of, you know, it was something where you can actually make some money. And that was a chance to do you know, new clothing that wasn't allowed for Jews before 1835. They weren't allowed to produce new clothing, so they were just forced into settle, uh, into, into uh, um, clothing they were actually selling, second-hand clothes. So what, what, what you're asking me is 
Unfortunately, your question I can't really answer. It is something that you do have a good relationship to fabrics. You have to know what fabrics. I mean, German tailors were always good in producing uniforms. That's why Hugo Boss actually still looks like a uniform maker. Um, you can figure that. You know, I mean, I, I, I have got a thing with Hugo Boss. I don't know what it is. <laughs> However, uh, so German tailors were very good in, in very thick fabrics. And the fashion industry, uh, they needed actually fine cotton fabrics. Uh, that's something a German tailor couldn't even touch. So it actually needed... Uh, a lot of uh, Jewish tailors and uh, other tailors to produce uh, a new, completely different kind of clothing. Uh, yes, the guy in here in the gray. Thank you. Hi. Uh, so many contemporary clothing makers in the United States, in particular fast fashion, rely on and exploit labor in third, in third world countries. Is that true for today's German corporations, and do they respond to, pr to public pressure in a different way than they do the accusations about uh, the Nazi past? I don't know, or I don't have the full picture of how the American public responds to that fact. Uh, but there is, of course, there is a growing movement of particularly younger people, uh, probably between 16, 18, and 20, and they are actually pretty keen into, you know, producing or buying sustainable fashion. The German situation is a little bit like, you know, they run behind the development that has been actually set up in the U.S. And there are some companies, startups, they try to produce clothing in a different way, uh, but then again, they occasionally forget that if you want to be successful in fashion, you have to produce large numbers, except you are in the haute couture business. Then you can ask for one dress that costs you easily eighteen to 25,000 bucks. Um, that's different if you want to just produce easy-to-wear clothes, and because the fact is also there is so much stuff already on the market. And um, in Germany, they, they, they try it, but um, I, I wish they would be successful, but I have my doubts that it will work out. Um, just we're going to switch side of the room. We have two here at the front. So one is the gentleman. Oh, mm. yeah. Okay, we have here and then in the front. Go ahead. Um, so why is it that you think it'd be that... Um, so many of the German brands now and like the schools kind of like deny this past, um, this past of the, the German or the Jewish history in fashion. Like, is it a, is it kind of a pride thing or is it a corporate, like a profit thing? What, what are some of the reasons that there might be? The reason why it isn't taught in universities, for example? Yeah, or kind of just like you talked about, like the American fashion d didn't advertise that anti-Semitism thing in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like why, why is that? Are they? Well, that's, that's a fantastic question, and I would love to give you an answer uh, because I don't know. I don't know. I just know that there is some kind of 
internal, maybe even a psychological hurdle to get over that fact that if you want to talk about the development of fashion in Germany over the last 50 years, you can't get away from the fact that there was a Nazi state that has confiscated basically everything that had the potential of creating great, fantastic and good fashion. And if you don't take that into account, and if you don't take that into your everyday life and practice as, for example, a university professor, a teacher, and you don't make people aware that that happened, um, then I don't know what's, what's, what is wrong, because it is so completely the opposite of many other industries in Berlin. Uh, Banks, they have published reports about what they did during the Nazi years. Or insurances. You, you can read everything about it, but the fashion industry and the German fashion culture, which is unfortunately supported by the German state with tons of tax money, they are not getting their act together and say, okay, this is where we are, now we are actually making or preparing something for next year or for the next 9th or 10th of November this year, and let's just do a memorial service. Let's just remind people of what Jewish fashion was. But this is something I find difficult to understand. Uh, maybe others don't. Uh, we have so many questions. I think only two more. So there's a gentleman in the red here at the front and then at the end of the, of the front row. I was in, um, in, in London in the 70s at, right. at an yeah. Orthodox Jewish firm as an auditor. And we had lots of uh, Jewish rag trade yeah. clients. So I'm curious to know, was Berlin ahead of London and New York? What was the relationship between these three cities in, the, in this period of time? Do you have some ideas? Or? Well, the rag trade in, in, in London was uh, pretty cruel and brutal. <laughs> I uh, would love to say, but uh, the, 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 there was no actually there was no union for the right trade, and Germany had a union. They were to a certain degree far more organized, but also that backfired once the system changed into a political dictatorship. So, and comparing it with the U.S., I mean they are already some fantastic novels about the uh, uh, schmutter trade and the rag trade uh, in New York. I mean, uh, there was crime. Of course there was crime. That was uh, a pretty wild time in the 50s, 60s, and even in the 70s. Um, but they ha obviously, they, 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 this industry has also had a tendency to uh, pull in some uh, people they... I wouldn't like to meet them in the dark. Let's put it this way. <laughs> Uh, my regrets. We have one more question. First of all, I want to thank you for a fabulous presentation. And I'm just sorry. To thank you. Thank you. And I'm sorry that you don't have your book over here so we could purchase it and have you sign it. But we'll find out where we can get it. I just wanted to give you a, a little personal history of my father who was a Jewish tailor in Lodge, and he oh. became a tailor 
Uh, his father wanted him to be a scholar, a Talmud scholar. He would run away from the yeshiva because he had no food. If he wasn't invited, he went hungry. So he would say to his father, I'm hungry. He said, God will provide. But he has a younger brother who was not as smart in the Talmud, said to him, Munich, if you want to eat, you better learn a trade. And my father said, a trade? Okay. What about a tailor? Okay. <laughs> this is, was considered the lowest of the trades. Mm -hmm. His father was mortified. He said, the butcher's son is going to the yeshiva and my son is becoming a tailor. <laughs> well, he apprenticed. He became a tailor. The story goes, when we were in the Soviet Union and he had to make some extra money, he made ladies' coats. Mm -hmm. And he was a great designer. Mm -hmm. And he made a fabulous coat for a KGB man's wife. And it was fabulous. And she told him, if you ever make another coat like that, you better watch out. <laughs> so she was like going to be the only one. We end up in DDP camps. There's a sewing class, and I want to take a sewing class. I said to my father, I'm going to learn how to sew. And he said, I don't want you to be a seamstress. And I said, why? I like sewing, and I did sew. But he did not think, because he remembered what kind of work it was for women. So I want to thank you very much for a fabulous present. You are so, very kind. Thank you. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank, thank you for that question, and thank you again, uh, Uwe Westhal, Westhal. We've been lucky to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. But, but one little thing, because the lady actually mentioned the book, that's actually something I should do. And indeed, indeed you can buy it. And indeed I get a cut from it. And indeed, you can actually order it in a bookshop, or I don't want to do advertising for something for Amazon. I don't know, heard about this company. So it is there. It's still in America, and there are still about, I don't know, 500 uh, English uh, copies left. So go and buy them. Thank you. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. 